The views shared in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of Audible or In the Room with Peter Bergen. Are there any official explanations of, say, significant events of the last, say, several decades that you do accept? Yeah, I, I, of course. I mean, I... Well, give me an example. Well, I know there's skepticism about the moon landing, for example. I, and I... I, <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> you don't share that skepticism? No, I do not. Okay. I, and, but you know what? Why do you not share that skepticism? Well, because I knew the guys who landed on the moon. Okay. So I went skiing with Buzz Aldrin every year. I knew the astronauts. I knew them as honorable men who I talked to about the incident, and that was evidence for me that it happened. That's Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He's challenging Joe Biden in the 2024 Democratic presidential primaries. He was just 14 years old when his father, Robert F. Kennedy, was assassinated while he was campaigning for president in 1968. And it was his uncle, President John F. Kennedy, who in 1961 set the goal of putting Americans on the moon by the end of that decade. RFK Jr.'s supporting evidence that the moon landing actually happened sets an awfully high bar for what he needs to know if he's going to believe an official explanation. Even something like the moon landing, which was an eight-year, many-billion-dollar, massive national program and was televised and watched by hundreds of millions of people. RFK Jr. has made a career out of challenging the status quo. For some of that work, like his time spent cleaning up the Hudson River as an environmental lawyer, he's received widespread praise. But in recent years, he's taken increasingly unorthodox positions, and I'm not going to get into those in this conversation because you can find him on the record about them elsewhere if you really want to. He's claimed, for instance, that antidepressants may be to blame for school shootings, that HIV may not cause AIDS, that vaccines cause autism, and Wi-Fi causes leaky brain and cancer, and so on. Unfortunately for me, Peter, because it's made my life kind of difficult, is I don't always accept official explanations. As a journalist, I can appreciate being skeptical about official explanations. I wanted to hear him out and for him to respond to my challenges as well. And I believe it's worth my time and yours to better understand people we may have major disagreements with, particularly if they're asking us to trust them to be leader of the United States. A CNN poll released this month had some pretty sobering news for President Biden. Two-thirds of likely Democratic voters say Biden shouldn't run for a second term. And half of them said that Biden's age was their biggest concern. For a candidate like RFK Jr., who's a full decade younger than Biden at 69 and likes to do push-ups on TikTok, that provides something of an opportunity. RFK Jr. is currently polling between 9 and 19 percent among Democrats. By comparison, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's regarded as Donald Trump's most viable challenger for the Republican nomination, is polling similarly in his party at between 10 and 24 percent. So let's dive into my conversation with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I'm Peter Bergen. Welcome to In the Room. Just a quick note before we get into the story. I hope you'll go to audible.com slash news, where you'll find my recommendations for other news, journalism, and nonfiction listening. 
That's audible.com slash news. Now, let's get back to the show. I was struck by something Kennedy said about truth this summer while he was campaigning in New Hampshire. Until we agree on what the truth is, we can't solve the problems. I couldn't agree more. A lack of shared truth to operate from can be really dangerous. This question of how we determine truth is a complicated one, but American democracy may depend on it. If Americans can't generally agree on certain undeniable facts like President Donald Trump lost the 2020 election, or that COVID vaccinations saved lives, or that climate change is real, we'll end up living in a world where making the correct policy choices for the American people will only get harder and harder. I sat down with RFK Jr. for a lengthy interview at the end of August. Because we talked about so many topics, this is longer than our typical episodes. In the first half, we focus more on national security and foreign policy issues. In the second half, we focus on domestic politics. Now, a note about how we handle fact-checking on our show. First of all, every episode is vigorously fact-checked by two different members of our staff. It's common among all of us in the course of a conversation to misspeak in small ways or make rounding errors. If it's a minor error and the meaning and intent are clear, we typically let those slide. For example, you'll hear Kennedy reference the addition of 14 countries to NATO membership after the end of the Cold War. It's actually 15 now, not a big deal. If it's a more significant diversion from verifiable fact, we either don't include that portion of the interview or I provide context or a correction in narration. Now, here's where things get tricky in this day and age. What one person claims is a fact, another may cast doubt on for a variety of reasons. It's a symptom of the growing mistrust of institutions and a vast ocean of misinformation that's instantly available online. For those who do want to access the full breadth of RFK Jr.'s opinions, he's written many books and he has his own podcast. I'd also just like to mention that Kennedy's quite distinctive voice is due to a disorder called spasmodic dysphonia. It means that muscle spasms affect his voice, but don't cause him any discomfort. We started by talking about the war in Ukraine. Kennedy has strong opinions about it that go against his party's leadership. And even more surprisingly, he has an intense personal connection to the fighting there. He disappeared then. About a week later, we saw a credit card bill from Poland, and then we saw one credit card bill from Ukraine. And then we didn't hear from him again for three months. Were you worried? Yeah, I was worried. Kennedy's son, Connor, went to Ukraine last year as a 28-year-old to join up with the international legionnaires fighting against the Russians. He had no prior military experience. He admired the valor of the Ukrainian people who put up a fight that nobody imagined that they would be able to put up with incredible bravery. He saw Putin as a bully. He saw the invasion as unnecessary, which I agree with. Kennedy may agree, but he also thinks the Biden administration shares much of the blame for the current situation in Ukraine. By the way, his son Connor is home safe and sound now. I asked RFK Jr. how he would handle the war in Ukraine if he were president. I would negotiate a peace. What would the peace look like? Well, I wouldn't say that because, of course, 
I negotiate for a living and I teach negotiation and I can tell you the first thing you do is not tell somebody what your endpoint position is when you're negotiating. But, you know, I, I think the leverage in negotiation has clearly gotten a lot weaker. I think earlier on it was clear that the Russians wanted to negotiate a withdrawal. They wanted an agreement that the NATO would stay out of Ukraine, which is existential to them. They've been invaded three times through Ukraine. The Biden administration has been pretty clear that they don't want Ukraine in NATO. That's their public position. Well, they've been ambiguous about it. You know, they, they have never taken a pledge that Ukraine will never be part of NATO. They've never said that. And the Russians have asked them to say that. And, you know, and by the way, our assurances about Moving NATO into countries are not that, you know, reliable. James Baker famously said in 1992 that we wouldn't move NATO one inch to the east. And then we proceeded to move it a thousand miles and 14 nations to the east. Well, but also those countries, they agree to become part of NATO. It's not like we're enforcing NATO well, on them. But, but, I mean, they're concerned. They've all been invaded multiple times by the Russians. Poland's been invaded uh, probably four or five times in the last two centuries by the Russians, and the Russians have taken over the country. So they, they have a legitimate right for their own self-defense. They're very concerned about Russian invasion. Yeah, well, that may be their concern, but is it in the U.S. national interest to treat Russia as, a, as an enemy, as a military adversary? When you do that, it turns out to be almost in every case a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you treat somebody like an enemy, they're going to be in acting like an enemy. They're going to be acting to defend themselves. We should be doing the opposite. We should be doing a martial plan with Russia to bring them into the community of nations. But here we are now. I understand you certainly don't want to show your hand, but there seems to be something of a stalemate, which in some ways is not necessarily a bad thing because the mutual recognition of a stalemate, which is hurting both sides, is the beginning of peace, potentially. What do you think the red lines are for Putin? What do you think the red lines are for Zelensky? My guess is that Zelensky is probably in danger from ultranationalists within his own government. And if he negotiates at all with Russia, that it's a, it's a death warrant for him. And he's also, you know, the people, his chief benefactors who are Victoria Newland and Anthony Blinken and the neocons within the state upper echelons, the State Department and the White House, um, will also cut him off if he negotiates the Russians. They want a conflict with Russia. So I don't know if it's possible. Why, why, why do they want a conflict with Russia? It seems to be, you know, I mean, obviously we have inflation in this country. is a big problem for the United States, gas prices global food prices. I mean, prolonging this conflict in Ukraine is in no one's interest. Well, I didn't say it was reasonable. I didn't say that it was a good idea. I'm just telling you what the, you know, the history shows clearly. I mean, we had a chance to have peace with the Russians. Listen, when, when Zelensky ran in 2019, here's a guy who's a comedian and, and an actor, and he has no political experience, and yet he wins with 70% of the vote because he runs on a peace platform. He runs promising that he's going to sign the Minsk Accords. I'm going to jump in here for a sec, and I'll do that from time to time to give some context of things that come up in the interview. To clarify this point about the Minsk Accords, these were attempts by an international coalition to stop the fighting between Ukraine and Russian separatists in the eastern Ukrainian territory of Donbass. 
The ceasefire agreements were signed by representatives of the warring parties in 2014 and 2015. But they weren't binding and they never really held. When Zelensky won the presidency a few years later, he did pledge to, quote, continue in the direction of the Minsk talks. But efforts to reboot those negotiations failed. Who you blame for that probably largely depends on how you view the motives of each side and who you think are more trustworthy, the Russians or the Ukrainians. The Minsk Accords were, to me, a reasonable settlement. Um, the, you know, the Russians wanted the ethnic Russian population of Donbass and Lugansk protected to make Lugansk and Donbass semi-autonomous so that they could speak their own language, retain their own culture, and protect the safety of ethnic Russians. And he wanted to keep NATO out of Ukraine. There were some other provisions in there that, you know, I think were probably negotiable, like denazifying the new government. Jumping in again here, the Minsk Accords made no mention whatsoever of keeping NATO out of Ukraine or anything about the Nazis. But those are current Russian talking points. I put that to Kennedy. Denazifying the new government sounds like a Putin talking point. Well, I, I mean, there is a long history in, in the Azov Battalion, which, you know, uh, adorns itself with swastikas and has a very clear line. And, and the new government put a statue, erected a statue of Stefan Bandera, who was a Nazi, as the national hero. Is Putin fighting Nazis in Ukraine? I'm not I'm being an apologist for yeah. Putin, and I'm not trying to rationalize what the neocons are doing over there. I think uh, both of them are in error. Putin did not want to take over the country. He wants us back at the negotiating table. But we won't help because we don't want peace. In fact, Lloyd Austin said in 2022, the, the Secretary of Defense, that our objective in Russia, in our objective in the Ukraine is to, to exhaust the Russian army and degrade its capacity to fight elsewhere in the world. And clearly, the, the neocons believe they could accomplish this through the sanctions. They thought that sanctions would bring down Putin and that the war would bring down Putin. And they failed disastrously in both cases. And by the way, if you needed a reason not to invade Russia, there's two other good ones. One is it has pushed them into a loving embrace with China, which is a foreign policy outcome that is, in my view, catastrophic with the United States. And we're toying at the precipice of a nuclear war with a country that has more, a thousand more nuclear weapons than we have. So Putin has threatened the use of tactical nukes in Ukraine. What if you were commander in chief? Well, I, I would, do? like I said, I would negotiate a peace. I, you know what they if, if he went through with this threat, I mean, what well, is you know the, his what you call a threat? We've made the same threats. Okay, what you call a threat is him saying if if a Russian existence is threatened that we will use tactical weapons. If any tactical weapons is used, it will almost certainly end up with a full exchange of nuclear weapons. Well, as Russian, uh, you've correctly explained Russian nuclear doctrine, which is if it's, if it's existential for us, we will use them. Yeah. So now it gets complicated because they've seized Crimea in 2014. They regard that as part of Russia proper. Could you see a scenario where... The Ukrainians are attacking Crimean positions, and he decides to use a tactical nuclear weapon. And if so, what would you do about it? I, I don't think he would use it in that case. But I, you know, I, uh, first of all, 
the Ukrainian army is exhausted. The reason offensive has utterly failed. It devoured the equipment that we gave them. Um, we do not have the capacity to beat Russia in this war. I mean, even if the United States entered the war, it's uncertain what would happen. Well, if, if the Russians were doing so well, why are they emptying their prisons to, if their conventional military was doing so well, why is there so many convicts fighting on their side? Well, you know, I, I can't answer that. I don't know. It's a very bloody, dangerous war. And there's lots of reasons why you might want to sacrifice uh, populations that, you know, that, that were uh, less costly politically. In your view, what would be worse, a second Biden term or a second Trump term? I don't think either I'm good, but you know, I'm worried about Biden because I think he will is more likely to get us in a nuclear war. Because? Because I think we're edging up to one. We're we're you know, we we've got Putin's back to the wall. He he's already said that if it's existential, he's gonna use a nuclear weapon. Once he uses it, we're gonna use all of ours, and that's it. And if you were commander in chief and he did follow through with some I, elements, you know what? I, if I'm commander in chief, he's not going to do that because he's going to know he's dealing with somebody who's going to settle this war. RFK Jr.'s position that the war in Ukraine is an expensive, bloody proxy war isn't uncommon, especially among Republicans. A CNN poll published in August found 71% of Republicans think the U.S. should not authorize more funding to support Ukraine. Among Democrats, 62% say the U.S. should spend more. As for his assertion that Russia really wants to negotiate, well, this seems like wishful thinking, given Putin's long record of aggression. For instance, ordering the Russian invasion of Chechnya in 1999, the invasion of Georgia in 2008, the invasion of parts of eastern Ukraine in 2014, and sending considerable Russian air power to Syria in 2015, to prop up the dictatorship of Bashar al-Assad, not to mention his almost daily indiscriminate attacks on Ukrainian civilian targets over the past year and a half. Given all that record, Putin doesn't seem to be in any danger of being nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize anytime soon. And Kennedy's claim he could negotiate a peace with Putin? That's a bold one. It doesn't sound all that different from the claim being made by this guy. I will end that war in one day. It'll take 24 hours. In fact, one thing that's both perplexing and probably also appealing to many people about Kennedy is that he's not easily categorized. On some issues, he echoes Republican talking points. On others, he's solidly on the left. Kennedy mentioned China, and that's one area that both parties find a lot of common ground on. They almost uniformly see it as America's greatest geopolitical threat. So I wanted to talk to him some more about that. As you know, Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, has said the People's Liberation Army needs to prepare for an invasion of Taiwan by 2027. If you were to win the election, you were commander-in-chief in 2027, what would your response be if the Chinese invaded Taiwan? I would not answer that question and not say, you know, the, our official position on that issue is strategic ambiguity. So, you know, nobody, no presidential candidate who, you know, has, has anything but kind of a sophomoric view of foreign policy is going to answer that question. And what, when you what, say strategic ambiguity, just for the listeners, what do you mean? That means that we're not going to say what we would do. We're going to yeah. leave that ambiguous. But we're not going to do... And, and, uh, in other words, that... It's the ambiguity can serve as a deterrent. 
But we're not going to do nothing. We have freedom of navigation exercises in the South China Sea. We're helping the Taiwanese arm themselves. Surely, if you're looking at it from the Chinese point of view is... Oh, from the Chinese point of view, I think they feel like we're rattling sabers and that we're pressuring them and that we're making it, I believe, making it more likely that they'll invade. Are we making the same mistake with China that you say we've made with Russia, which is sort of turning them into a bigger threat than they are, which is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy? I think that we're doing exactly that. I think Xi Jinping wants to bury us. He wants to dominate the world. He wants to, you know, be the, the, the world's greatest superpower and the wealthiest nation. China does not want to fight us in a hot war. They, they're doing what they do, which is to project economic power abroad, and they want an economic competition with us. And I, frankly, am not scared of that. I think that we should develop a framework with them for having that competition and that we should compete in every country in the world. You've noticed quite a number of Biden administrations, senior level, like the Commerce Secretary and others have been visiting China. So that's a good thing, right? I think it is. I, I think, you know, a lot of the Republicans are talking about isolating ourselves economically from China, and I think that's a huge mistake. My objective is to protect the middle class in this country, so protect them from unfair competition abroad. Do things that aren't going to help them, but I don't think making an economic war against China is good for any. Well, so China announced last just last week that their fertility rate is at the lowest it's ever been. They're having this demographic crash. They're having this economic crash. They're yes. having a real estate crash. I mean, so does this change your thinking about China? The Chinese economic miracle, which went on for so long and was also very helpful to the United States in many different ways, seems to be running out of steam. What do you make of all that? I, you know, I think it's a huge problem. And I, I what I worry about, Peter, is that... When nations uh, get into that kind of economic problems, they're much more likely to go to war because yeah. it's a way of distracting domestic politics away from domestic problems and focusing them on an external enemy and, you know, and also jacking up industry and, and getting rid of the demographic that's most likely to revolt, which is young men of military age. And they have a huge youth unemployment problem as well. Yeah, they, have, they, they, they had 21% unemployment, and yeah. then they solved that problem, though, by stopping publishing data. Exactly. So does that make an invasion of Taiwan more likely in your estimation? I think it does. I think, you know, if you're looking for tripwires, a collapsing economy in China makes the world a more dangerous place. But you still don't want to say anything about what you might do if that happened. No, I, what I think what I would do as president is try to de-escalate military tensions with China and redirect the competition to an economic competition, which I've, I've confidence that the United States can win. You know, we have 800 bases abroad. They have one and a half. Those 800 bases absorb such a large part of our national energies, including intellect and innovation and entrepreneurship and all of these other things that are crippling us. And what we need to do is to, you know, begin unraveling the empire and do what my uncle wanted to do, which is, to, you know, my uncle said the primary job of, the, of a U.S. president is to keep the country out of war. We need to project economic power abroad. That's the real source of strength for a nation and a, a robust middle class. And we need to rebuild those things. You have your disagreements with Biden. Presumably the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which enabled this Taliban victory, is not one of them. I think that we needed to get out of Afghanistan. Why? 
because we've been there for 20 years. It's not our job to be the policeman of the world. Let me just say this. The way that we got out of Afghanistan, I would call it reprehensible. Because? Because it was driven by an imperative to get out by September 11th for a, a publicity event. And that it could have been done without loss of American life if the military did not have to comply with that deadline. So that was a political decision rather than a military decision. And I think that's reprehensible. What about the many Afghans who worked with us in Afghanistan? My policy would be to get as many of them out as possible. Gee, it, was a, it was a waste of you know, a trillion dollars of, of U.S. treasure and, and, and many, many lives. And, you know, it's like Iraq we did the same thing. You know, Iraq, we go in, we spend, what, four and a half trillion dollars in Iraq. I mean, those wars cost us eight trillion dollars total. And we got nothing for him. I mean, Iraq is well. We weren't off. attacked in the United States by Al Qaeda again. I mean, we, there was there wasn't nothing. Well, but why did Al Qaeda attack us? Al Qaeda attacked us because we had troops in Saudi Arabia next to Mecca. That's the cost of blowback. We, you know, every time we put a troop abroad, we invite, we make ourselves a target. And what ha you know, what my re reaction would have been to nine eleven, I would have said, okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to get off foreign oil. Because that's what's causing our problems. Of course, the United States is now much less dependent on the rest of the world. But that said, you know, the Saudis still can set prices. We can't just sort of throw up our hands and say we're not going to take any foreign oil. That we the, our, our demand signal is just too large. Well, I would reduce that. I would try. I would use market forces to reduce. Well, having you know, there's some math here. We can obviously reduce our dependence on foreign oil, but at the end of the day, prices are set by a group of people that we don't completely control, which is called OPEC, right? So the Saudis and the Russians, etc., they set prices. Well, that, that's why we need to get off foreign oil, because otherwise we have other nations that are controlling our destiny and our democracy, and that's not a good idea. The number one thing we need to do as a nation. You know, more important than the moonshot, more important than anything else is to get off of foreign oil, whatever it takes. And I, you know, I think if we had true markets, we, we spend we spend five point two trillion dollars a year on subsidies to the carbon industry. And that doesn't include the eight trillion dollars that we spent on wars protecting essentially oil pipelines. Just to clarify, he's right that the fossil fuel industry is heavily subsidized, and not just by the United States. That 5.2 trillion figure is actually a tally of global subsidies. It's a 2017 figure from the IMF, and these global oil subsidies are actually up to $7 trillion now. If those companies were forced to internalize the, those costs, gasoline would cost its true price, which is about $22 a gallon, and we would be figuring out using American initiative and our industrial genius, other ways to get around. You mentioned 9-11. The official explanation of 9-11 you, you buy? Which is what? Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11. I, I, I don't know what happened on 9-11. I mean, I understand what the official explanation is. I understand that there is dissent. I have not looked into it. I haven't examined it. I'm not a good person to talk to about it. Well, I mean, so there's doubt in your mind that Al-Qaeda was responsible? Well, I know, I don't know. You know, I know that there's, I know there's strange things that happen that don't seem. What, what are the strange things? Well, one of the buildings came down that wasn't hit by a plane. So, you know, it wasn't building seven or building 10. That collapsed because two of the world's biggest buildings collapsed on top of it. No, they didn't collapse on top of it. My offices were down there. 
My offices were closed. So my one of the buildings in, next to the Trade Center. No, there's pictures of it collapsing. There's nothing collapsing on top of it. I mean, I listen, I don't want to argue any theories about this because all I've heard is questions. I have no explanation. I have no knowledge of it. But, but if, if what you're, you're repeating now, I know not to be true. To clarify, yes, I could have been more precise here. The government's official report found that Building 7 was hit with debris from the North Tower. That impact caused fires, which led to the building collapse. It's very well documented, and there's nothing strange about it. It's not something that I, you know, any part of I endorse one way or the other, but I do think that it ought to be permissible in this country to question official narratives. I couldn't agree with you more. I've yeah. spent three decades yeah. reporting on Al-Qaeda and you know, interviewed yeah. bin Laden and you know, spent a lot of my life going around the world reporting. I know you have. I admire you greatly for that. But I, I just saw on the 9-11 investigation, you know, this was the largest criminal investigation in history. There are 500,000 leads, 170,000 witness interviews. You're not accepting, but that kind of was a feather. I, I, don't tell me what I'm accepting or not, because yeah. I never said I don't accept Okay, but what I are just, you saying? Because you're saying that I've you still have- I have no expertise in it. You have, okay. But you still have, still have questions about it. Well, I'm not, you know, I haven't read the data myself. And unfortunately right. for me, Peter, because it's made my life kind of difficult, is I don't always accept official explanations. There are conspiracy theories out there surrounding 9-11, but it's an area where I have looked at the evidence and interviewed many hundreds of people myself. And if your position is that the 9-11 Commission's explanation of September 11th, which was based on the most comprehensive criminal investigation in the history of humankind, is somehow up for question, this kind of extreme skepticism is going to make being president, well, kind of tough. That's why I thought Kennedy's answers about 9-11 raise interesting questions about his theory of knowledge. Wanting to go to the source and dig into the details is a great sign of a curious mind. But the White House would be paralyzed if the president was always personally digging into all the underlying data to make his or her own assessments. As president, you'll have a thousand choices, both large and small, where you're just going to have to accept some expert opinions, whether it's the likely pace of unemployment or the likely course of a pandemic. We elect a president not because we expect one person to know absolutely everything. We expect them to know who to trust and how to make sound judgments. I still wanted to hear more about how RFK Jr. would approach the myriad other foreign policy questions that a president faces. So we tick through a few more in this next part of the conversation, starting with the US policy on drone warfare. After 9-11, the U.S. deployed many hundreds of drone strikes against suspected terrorists in countries like Libya, Pakistan, Somalia, and Yemen, killing hundreds of civilians in the process. The Biden administration has largely dialed that back. Would you suspend the drone program? I don't know. I, I probably wouldn't suspend it outright. I, I want to look at it. I want to make a, a, a reasoned judgment on whether it actually is helping keep Americans safe, helping protecting our national interests. The Biden and the Trump administrations have suspended it effectively in Pakistan, the last drone strike where there was in 2018. But the Biden administration seems to be amping up the drone program in Somalia. What's your view of all that? I think the Biden administration is 
you know, it's like the guy who has only one tool, a hammer, and he sees every problem as a nail. And President Biden has, you know, been a, a militarist, you know, a one solution, shoot ready aim for his entire career. But his own record argues a bit against that. He, we just discussed his withdrawal from Afghanistan against the advice of his own military. He also pulled out of Iraq in 2011. It was him and Tony Blinken who were... Well, yeah, he, they're pulling out of places, but he's also the first one in. He was the first one into Iraq. Just today, there's stories about sort of AI-powered jets. So think about a future which is already here where AI is making kill decisions on the Chinese side and also potentially on our side. Is that legitimate or what's your position on should there be a human in the kill chain? Are we well, these are such awful questions and, you know, Orwellian and... But they're here. They're not Orwellian. I mean, they're here today. The yeah, China... well, obviously that is, you know, that's a pretty easy moral call that you need to put a human in the chain. But the Chinese don't care about it. They have autonomous drones that are governed by AI. Yeah, so what are you trying to do? Scare me about China? No, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just saying they are a rival. I'm not saying we should go to war with them. Well, or and we also, you know, democracies sometimes means fighting wars with one arm tied behind your back because, you know, your primary objective is to preserve the democratic institutions at home. Do you think it was a mistake to get out of the Iranian nuclear agreement in 2018? Uh, no, because I don't think those agreements were strong enough to prevent Iran from um, from going forward. But, you know, that's my, uh, I, I don't have a deep, deep knowledge. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, Trump's own intelligence community was saying the Iranians are sticking to the deal. Now they've got fissile material enough for a nuclear weapon. Uh, you know, they were sticking to the agreement. And I, I accept if you don't know the details. Yeah, I, I don't know the details. I, I would, you know, I would, I did not do a deep dive on yeah. it back then. But if they were to acquire a nuclear weapon, which they, they probably could in a future President. I think our primary objective in the Mideast should be to make sure that that doesn't happen, and hopefully through diplomacy. Would that it was so simple. Every American president since Jimmy Carter has struggled with how best to contain the revolutionary Islamist regime in Tehran. Iranian proxy forces now play key roles in several countries across the Middle East, from Lebanon in the north to Yemen 1,500 miles to the south. And now Iran has enough fissile material for several nuclear weapons, according to the United Nations. Another intractable global conflict that every U.S. president must consider, of course, is the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians. You're a very solid defender of Israel. Is the is two-state solution dead? I think for the moment it is dead. Could you resurrect it if you were in the bright position? Maybe in some form. I mean, it really depends on the Palestinians and the Palestinian leadership. You know, I mean, the, the Israelis have offered to trade land for peace and the Palestinian leadership um, has in each case refused. But now you have this much more extreme right Israeli government that seems much less likely to make any concessions. So how do you deal with them? Well, you know, I listen, I think you can be critical of Israel. Um, and the same as the people can be critical of the United States. I don't co-sign every policy by the Likud or by Netanyahu. I side with the protesters over in Israel who are um, protesting particularly the judicial reforms. I think, you know, Israel yeah. is has the best judiciary in the world. You know, I think people like me who want to make a moral case for Israel at the best exemplar 
of that argument is the this extraordinary independence of the Israeli Supreme Court and the extraordinary humanity of the Israeli Supreme Court. And so I don't like seeing that threats to that autonomy. You went to Harvard. You're a um, very well-educated human being. But foreign policy, national security hasn't historically been your area of expertise. I, I wouldn't say that. Okay. I've been writing about foreign policy and national security since I was my first article. I was 19 years old, 1973, for the Atlantic Monthly uh, on Chile. And right. I've written many, many articles. And, you know, in, in fact, one of the most read articles in Politico, I think, in 2016 was my article on the Syrian war. I've written about foreign policy for, what is that, 50 years. You seem pretty confident that you could potentially win the presidency. You would be the second American president with no political experience or military experience. The first was Donald Trump. So what prepares you to be commander in chief? I would say at this point in history, not being part of that system is actually probably a virtue. And so this son of an American political dynasty, who's casting himself as an outsider and proud critic of the system, is now running to lead it. As for his commander-in-chief creds, articles in The Atlantic and Politico don't really seem to cut it. So what of RFK's foreign policy prescriptions? His big idea seems to be neo-isolationism, i.e. pulling back from American empire, which is a position that's now embraced by both much of the left of the Democratic Party and also a lot of Republicans a large majority of whom think the U.S. should stop funding the Ukraine war. For the rest of our conversation, I wanted to dig in more on domestic policies and politics. I asked if he was worried that running against President Biden in the primaries would hurt Biden's chances to beat Donald Trump in the general election. President Biden has wounded himself. You know, he's telling the country that he's brought prosperity in the country when... 57% of people in this country cannot put their hands on $1,000 if they have an emergency. For those people, the engine light comes on in their car and it's the end of the world. It's the apocalypse. What are the top three things you would do to ameliorate that situation? Well, one, I will wind down the empire abroad and I'll start bringing that money home and investing in schools, public health, eliminating the chronic disease epidemic. Uh, and getting Americans healthy again. Our biggest cause, even bigger than military, is health care. $4.3 trillion. 80% of that is going to chronic disease. We have a higher chronic disease burden than any other country. And that is also a part of the war on the middle class, um, keeping people sick all the time. The obesity epidemic, when my uncle was president, it was 13%. I was 47%. And... Two-thirds of Americans are overweight. That's lost productivity. Is Ozempic a big answer to that? What? Ozempic, is that going to be a big answer to a lot no, of this? No, I don't think pharmaceutical drugs are a, an answer to, get us, to getting us healthier. So what is? Ending the exposures that are causing the chronic disease epidemic. And my first week in office, I'm going to go down to Bethesda, and I'm going to tell the people at NIH, you know, we're going to switch a lot of our focus to figuring out why Americans are the sickest population on Earth. Saying Americans are the sickest people on Earth feels a bit hyperbolic, but by some measurements, it's actually true. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, six in 10 Americans have at least one chronic disease. 
And the health of Americans and the extraordinary costs of American health care are important priorities for a president. Kennedy talks often about the toxic soup we swim in by existing in the modern world. In his career as a lawyer, he's taken big swings at corporate polluters. He brokered a major deal to protect New York's water supply, won cases for people who lived in the shadow of Superfund sites, and convinced a jury to make the agricultural giant Monsanto pay millions. In 2001, he was arrested for protesting the U.S. military's bombing exercises in Vieques, Puerto Rico. Environmentalist Robert F. Kennedy Jr. arrested in April, along with more than 80 others, for entering the Vieques bombing range in an effort to halt the naval exercises there. But it's his unwavering skepticism about the safety of vaccines, just Google RFK Jr. and vaccines if you don't know what I'm talking about, that pushed Kennedy outside the mainstream. And his criticisms of the U.S. government's response to the COVID pandemic fueled his rise as the leader of an unlikely coalition. His supporters come from across the political spectrum. Their common denominator appears to be a deep mistrust of corporate and government institutions. This mistrust has led RFK Jr. to other unorthodox beliefs, including some about the CIA's supposed involvement in the assassinations of his father, Robert F. Kennedy, and uncle, President John F. Kennedy. The evidence that the CIA was involved in my uncle's uh, murder is, I think, so insurmountable and so, um, you know, mountainous and overwhelming that I, it's beyond any reasonable doubt. It's worth noting that he's an outlier in the Kennedy family for many of these views, and most of his relatives are not publicly supporting his campaign for president which leaves him in the strange position of being part of the most storied family in American politics, a guy who's gone skiing with Buzz Aldrin and hangs out with Hollywood celebrities, but is also something of a black sheep in democratic politics. You're something of an outsider, right? And yet at the same time, you come from a very rich family and you went to Harvard, your dad went to Harvard and you're the fifth Kennedy to run for presidential office. How do you square that with this sort of outsider effort to become the president of the United States? Well, you know, my father was the same. My father was running against uh, the establishment. He had nobody on his side. He was running against a, a Democratic president of his own party, like I am. He was running against a war, and he was running against the war machine. You know, I'm in a worse position because I've got the whole pharmaceutical industry and, you know, a lot of other people against me. So, Will you support President Biden if he wins the nomination? Uh, I, you know what? I'm not going to answer that. I don't, I don't have a plan B. I intend to win the nomination, and I'll make up my mind then. How many delegates do you need to win the nomination? Half of them, plus one. You think there's a plausible road to get that number? I do think so. First of all, according to our own polls, I'm much more likely to be Trump than Biden. You know, even the hardest-line Biden supporter are going to be too uncomfortable with the fact that they don't believe that he can debate. He's going to have to debate Trump. I think he needs to come out and debate because, you know, this is a rigorous job and he needs to show that he's up to it. And if he can't show that with me, he's not going to be able to show it with Trump. Biden doesn't have to debate anyone during the primaries and the Democratic National Committee doesn't want him to. In fact, no incumbent president has participated in primary debates since 1948. Obama didn't do them. Trump didn't do them. 
But RFK Jr. isn't the only one banging the debate drum. A growing chorus of notable people are calling for democratic debates, from former presidential candidate Andrew Yang to former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey. And of course, Marianne Williamson, also running in the Democratic primaries and polling around 3%, wants a shot at the debate stage too. You have been embraced by Mike Flynn, Steve Bannon, Roger Stone, the far right of the Republican Party. Lots of Democrats, including people in your own family, are not endorsing you. Are you in the wrong party? No, I'm a Democrat. I'm a traditional Kennedy Democrat. You know, I'm a, I'm a leading environmentalist, arguably, in the country. I'm for, you know, medical autonomy, for women's right to choose. I'm anti-war. I'm pro-free speech, which is the bedrock of uh, democratic liberalism. Go, go down the list. I'm a, I'm a Democrat. On, on, on abortion, how does your Catholicism inform your view of abortion and what should or should not be done? It makes it a very complex and difficult issue for me. And it also puts me in a position where I understand both sides. I understand that every abortion is a tragedy. I've seen, you know, late-term abortion pictures and they're, you know, they're horrifying. So I understand the people who are who want them banned. But I also am too skeptical of government to believe that it should be the one that should be dictating, you know, uh, bodily decisions. What did you make of the affirmative action decision, which, of course, involved Harvard as one of the defendants, in a sense, by the Supreme Court? Did you think that was the right decision to end affirmative action? I didn't action? think that's the right decision, and particularly if you're going to keep uh, legacies, because, uh, you know, the legacy policy is an affirmative action for white people only. Agreed. And you obviously benefited from yourself, it seems. Uh, probably. Probably. I mean, I had pretty good scores and pretty good grades. And my kids, a couple but, of them had perfect SAT scores. But, uh, and I only say that because I don't want, you know, people hearing this interview and thinking that my kids, that that's what they relied on. So, I mean, you would be in favor of ending legacy admissions? Well, I, you know, I, I don't think we should pretend it's a meritocracy and then, you know, exclude blacks. But, I, Peter, I also, I understand both sides. I understand that, you know... It's not good over the long term for our country to have race-based anything. But I also understand there's been 300 years, not just slavery, but, you know, 300 years of structural racism um, that has specifically and deliberately destroyed the economic vitality and institutions of black communities. You know, the affirmative action was originally proposed as a, a mechanism for making up that deficit that was owed to that community. And do I think it had run its course? No. I think we need some more years of it, but it's over now. Would you enlarge the court if you're a president? I wouldn't enlarge the court. Because? I just think it's a terrible president. I, you know, I, I'm very much aware of the attempts by FDR to do that and how that was viewed by the American public as, you know, cheating on the rules. And I think that that's, you know, then then what happens? A conservative Republican comes in after me and enlarges it again, you know, yeah. for their agenda. We have to have some respect for democratic institutions. We need to strengthen these institutions and not weaken them or discredit them in the eyes of the American public. In California and San Francisco, there's been some discussion of fairly substantial reparations. And where do, where do you fall on that? 
Well, you know, I've been trying to get reparations for um, indigenous people in litigation against big industries and against governments for, you know, to try in one way or another to get reparations for the theft of lands, et cetera. So I, I understand the moral call, uh, case for reparations. I think that um, it's very clear that race-based reparations would be unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment under the Roberts decision in the Harvard case that you and I just talked about and earlier decisions too. So there may be uh, arguments for people who are the descendants of slaves in this country that could, you know, that they can make that claim. What I would say is that's a, it's a heavy lift and a lot of Americans would consider it very unfair. But what I think that we need to do that I think would be embraced for all Americans is address the structural repair of those communities. We spent $8 trillion on wars, and we've made a decision to spend that money on the war machine. And Martin Luther King understood this. We had to make a choice, either the war in poverty or the war in Vietnam. And we made the wrong choice in every case. Because he grew up in the sort of spotlight that comes with being a Kennedy, the wrong choices RFK Jr. has made in his personal life have been very public. As a young man, he was arrested for marijuana possession and heroin possession. RFK Jr. says he was addicted to heroin for more than a decade, and he's credited 12-step programs for helping him stay sober. Of course, there's another son of a famous political family who struggled with addiction issues. Does he have any advice for Hunter Biden, President Joe Biden's son? I mean, if I, if he asked me for sobriety advice, I you know I would uh, I'd take him to a meeting. So <laughs> you know, I, you go every day. Yeah, I go every day. What does it do for you? It keeps me in a posture of surrender. My inclination, like most people, I think, is that you know we invite God into our lives when uh, when everything's going wrong. You know, when we're getting bombed in the foxhole, and then you know when. When we get out and everything goes right and the cash and prizes begin flowing in, you know, in my inclination is to say, thanks, God, I got it from here. And then take the wheel of the car and drive it off the cliff again. You cannot live off the laurels of a spiritual awakening. You have to renew it every day. And I don't like going to meetings. I don't enjoy it. I don't want to do it. I do it the same reason I brush my teeth, because I don't want to live with the consequence of what happens if I don't do it. So you had a long career as an environmental lawyer, and I mean, you were instrumental in cleaning up the Hudson River, which is one of the sort of great environmental victories in this country. Given where we are on climate change, the, you know, the hottest year on record, it looks like, what are the specific things you would do to ameliorate the situation? I'll tell you what I would not do. I would not put hundreds of billions of dollars into carbon capture. I think carbon capture is a boondoggle that is actually designed to uh, subsidize the carbon industry. In tell, tell, tell our listeners what carbon capture really means. Carbon capture is, okay, we're going to take a dirty industries, we're going to capture their carbon, and then, you know, they, what they say is we're going to pump it under the ground in deep well injections where it will be frozen the geology and it will never escape. And the taxpayers are going to pay for it. So if it's not that, what are the solutions? And we need to focus on uh, habitat protection, environmental protection, destroying the natural systems, destroys the resilience of the planet to climate changes. 
and the, the focus exclusively on carbon plays into the hands of these big industries. And what I would say is that the ultimate solution for a very fast transition is to end subsidies to carbon and let the market close those plants, which they will force them to internalize their costs. I've said, I don't care if you believe in climate change or not. I do. I think it's existential. You don't have to join me. You don't have to describe that belief. But you have to care about the fact that every freshwater fish in America is now contaminated with mercury, that the acid rain has destroyed the forest cover on the high peaks of the Appalachians from Georgia to northern Quebec, that our fisheries are being acidified along the coast and they're destroying the shellfish beds. Americans can be united on environmental battles if if they're framed properly. This is one of those observations of Kennedy's that makes him something of an enigma to me. Here's a well-reasoned plea to find common ground where there's currently a lot of shouting across the political divide. It seems so at odds with the fringe positions he takes on other issues. I also wanted to ask Kennedy how he'd approach another important issue that falls on any president's plate, immigration and border policies. Well, there, there's two things. One is to close the border. And, How do you, know, you do that? Well, you do it by, you know, you complete the physical uh, structures in the populated areas. You don't need a a wall, you know, all the way from 2,200 miles from Brownsville, Texas to, uh, to San Diego. But you do need a, a physical barrier. You do need a wall in the heavily populated areas. And then I would restore... The surveillance systems that were in place that were removed by the Biden administration, the towers, the lights, the motion sensors, the videos in the other sections. And they had immigration down to very, very manageable levels three, three and a half years ago. And then, you know, Biden removed all that stuff and uh, all those safeguards. Another quick fact check here. When we reached out to U.S. Customs and Border Protection, They told us that while some surveillance systems are taken offline due to being found ineffective or for refurbishment, overall, the Biden administration is investing in more of these kinds of systems. And the agency wasn't aware of any wide-scale retreat from their use. And and by the way, I was against Trump's wall. So there's something that I was wrong on. I, you know, I, I wouldn't do the whole border like he did, but I, you know, been down there. I watched 300 people come across in two hours unobstructed from all over the world. I talked to them and they, not, you know, they didn't have asylum claims and they're just walking across and they're handed airplane tickets to go anywhere in the country. And right now, right here where we are in New York City, there's 100,000 of them. They have this heartbreaking humanitarian crisis for them. Trump got the wall, right? I think we need a physical barrier and we need a policy. We also need asylum judges, and that's probably the most critical um, thing. We need enough asylum judges to adjudicate those cases at the border before people enter the country. Much of Kennedy's take on border security sounds more in line with the Republican Party. But I want to pause and say he's making a really important point here about the need for a lot more asylum judges. The lack of judges means there are years-long backlogs in asylum cases. Can I ask you uh, about a a national security threat that may not be sort of seen as a conventional national security threat, which is fentanyl? Opioid overdoses is killing more Americans between the ages of 18 and 49 than any other cause of death. And it's mostly fentanyl. So what, what would you do about this issue? 
Anybody who says they can stop fentanyl at the border is to not telling you the truth. Fentanyl is a very, very uh, a small molecule, you know, as an active ingredient. It's always going to be easy to smuggle and it's always going to be hideously dangerous. I, I had a niece that, you know, I lost from that during the pandemic. All families, American families, at some level or another, are touched by this. You're completely right. Uh, fentanyl, you know, a few tons would kill everybody in the United States. So stopping at the border is, seems implausible. But a number of, like Governor DeSantis, uh, J.D. Vance, other Republicans have been calling for U.S. Special Forces to go into Mexico and take out the fentanyl cartels. Is that something you would endorse? No, it's not something I would endorse. But what I would endorse is actually building a relationship of cooperation with the Mexican government. What does that relationship look like? Well, a good relationship would look at, you know, at cooperation between our two countries and not only, you know, controlling the U.S. border, but in helping the Mexicans to control their southern borders. Can Little I throw out an idea we're there? Destroying, we're destroying their farms. Can I throw out, they have a huge problem with uh, semi-automatic weapons coming across their border yeah. from the United States. Yeah, which, well, that's a very good point, Peter. Um, speaking of semi-automatic weapons, do you own a gun? No. You're not a gun owner? No. But uh, you've said that you're a Second Amendment guy? Yeah, I, what I've said is I'm not taking people's guns away. What about AR-15s? AR-15s are only designed to do one thing. It's the civilian version of an M16 rifle, right? So they're designed to kill people. Why should it be so easy to get these weapons? Uh, and are, would there, are there circumstances in which they shouldn't be allowed to, to be purchased? Well, listen, I, I think these murders and the school shootings particularly are unacceptable. Listen, my father was killed by a gun. My uncle was killed by guns. So I understand the, you know the, what's happening in this country and the tragedy that people feel. What I've said is that if if Congress brings me a bill that both houses have approved of I will on AR fifteen said I will sign it. But it's not sign a, sign a bill saying that AR fifteen shouldn't be sold. Yeah. Uh, at all to, to to just the general public. Well yeah, if that's what if that if that's what the bill says. I also understand that there's a gun culture in this country um, that it feels existential to people if you're t taking away the guns and they're not, you know, you but we're not about, I mean, look, my, my in-laws in Louisiana don't hunt deer with AR-15s, right? I mean, they're not concerned that their guns are going to be taken away. Uh, but if AR-15s were just in gun ranges and were just in... I, I understand that. Yeah. I, I understand that. But there are also people who believe that, that their AR-15s are protecting them from government overreach. That's the, that is the rationale that they believe. Do you think that's a legitimate belief? I wouldn't say one way or the other whether it's legitimate. I think there's a lot of good arguments that they make that I've heard them make for that. I'm trying to focus my campaign on the values that will hold people together rather than focusing on the culture war values that keep Americans apart. And right now, we've come out of a three-year period where we've seen a larger government overreach than at any time in American history. And it was all done on the pretense that there's a pandemic. But there is no pandemic exception in the United States Constitution. And the people who wrote that Constitution were very aware of the dangers of epidemics, and yet they did not include an epidemic exception in the United States Constitution. More Americans died of COVID than died in every war since the American Revolution. Well, first of all, I would not agree with that. 1.2 million at least have died from COVID. Well, but I'm not saying that COVID was not killing people at all. COVID was an epidemic and it was killing people. 
a global okay. pandemic. We had we had epidemics before, and we didn't ban the Constitution. So in the next lockdown. pandemic, which is inevitable, what would your policies be? Well, first of all, I don't think the next pandemic is... Uh, I think this ideology that we're going to have a pandemic every two years is... Well, I'm not suggesting that, but I mean... Well, yeah, not- but that's what we're being told, that it's right around the corner. What I would do is I would, number one... I would begin eliminating the most likely causes of epidemics, which is number one, gain-of-function studies all over the world. Gain-of-function studies are an important topic in a book that Kennedy published in 2021 during the height of the COVID pandemic. It was titled The Real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health. Gain-of-function research takes viruses and manipulates them. By tinkering with them, the result may be a pathogen that's even more dangerous to humans. But on the plus side, vaccines can also be developed from this research. This kind of research does come with risks of creating deadly viruses and exposing people to them. But there's also never been an epidemic where the scientific consensus says the cause was gain-of-function research. In his book about Dr. Fauci, who played a key role in managing the COVID pandemic in the Trump and Biden administrations, Kennedy asserts that Fauci made generous investments in gain-of-function research and as a result, quote, may have played a role in triggering the global contagion. In 2021, Fauci said it's a shame that Kennedy's book attacks his career and undermines confidence in the American public health system. Fauci asserted that, quote, ultimately that is hurting people. That will cause disease. It's very unfortunate because... I don't think he is inherently malicious. I just think he's a very disturbed individual. A recent unclassified U.S. intelligence assessment of COVID's origins released in June said that almost all of the U.S. intelligence community assesses that the virus that causes COVID, quote, was not genetically engineered. The same report also concluded that the origin of the virus could either be from a natural exposure to an infected animal or a laboratory-associated accidental leak. So, in short, there is no definitive answer about the origins of COVID, and we may never know for sure. I read the part of Kennedy's Fauci book that focused on COVID, and I had some questions for him about it. Were you surprised by how well uh, your book, The Real Anthony Fauci, did? I think it sold a million copies. I was surprised in light of the fact that it was... It was so heavily censored. Well, if it was sold a million copies, how was it censored? There was no review in any mainstream paper. It was silenced. Um, Even when the New York Times and the Washington Post did very, very critical articles about me, they they said he's written a book, but they wouldn't mention the book. So the name of the book. And then um, Elizabeth Warren wrote a letter to Amazon asking them, to censor the book, and and the and Amazon responded to that by removing uh, reviews and by downgrading it in a number of ways. So it was. I bought it on Amazon. Yeah, you can buy it. You can yeah. still buy it. One of the things I found puzzling about this book, having um, I published something called the Coronavirus Daily Brief for about two and a half years, so I read a lot of the material, but the. The kind of claim that the COVID vaccine killed more people than, than saved lives. Well, wait a minute. Where, where do I make that claim? You quote at the end of the book, um, let me just see here. You quote a, a medical ethics advocate, and she, uh, uh, Vera Sharav. 
Okay, she's a Holocaust survivor. Yeah. She says, we need to recognize that this is a vast human experiment on all of mankind with an unproven technology conducted by spies and generals, primarily trained to kill and not to save lives. And then you conclude, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, is it your view that the COVID vaccine ended up killing more people than it, than it saved? Or? But, but Peter, you can make an excuse or an argument either way. What I try to deal with is actual science and not speculation. Uh, what I would say to you is we cannot make that judgment. It's worth noting here that researchers at Brown and Harvard did make that judgment, finding that COVID vaccines could have prevented at least 318,000 American deaths between January 2021 and April 2022. And the notion that there's some real debate to be had around whether or not COVID vaccines save lives is preposterous. The nonpartisan COVID crisis group's report found that during the Delta wave of COVID in 2021 and the Omicron wave of 2022, the vast majority of hospitalized patients were unvaccinated. A lot of your career is being about the truth, yeah. seeking the truth. So like at an event in New Hampshire said, until we agree on what the truth is, we can't solve the problems. How do you determine the truth? Who do you trust? What's your process? Well, I mean, my dad told me when I was young that people in authority lie. And part of being a responsible citizen in a democracy is to maintain a, a fierce skepticism toward authority and particularly big aggregations of power. We do need a federal government that is trusted and does all the functions a federal government does. So how would you propose reversing this lack of trust? I would do that by making the government trustworthy. People should not trust the government now. It's untrustworthy. People should not trust the media. It's untrustworthy. We need to make it trustworthy. We need to remove these corrupt entanglements between the regulated industry and the regulators. It's outrageous that NIH officials are allowed to collect personal royalties on on products that they, you know, were supposed to have regulatory authority over. It's outrageous that FDA gets 45% of its budget from the industry that they're supposed to regulate. So that seems like a fairly simple fix where you you prevent the FDA from getting money from pharmaceutical companies as part of that budget. Oh, it's statutory. So it's not completely, it's not something that you can do with an executive order. You need, it's more complex than that. But I will propose to change that legislation and I will do whatever I can within the realm of my power to immediately correct it. Well, a lot of people seem to believe Trump's lies about the 2020 election. Why do you think that is? I think part of it is that the people no longer trust the media. And the reason they don't trust the media is because the media habitually lies. It used to be journalists were, you know, people who were committed to these existential search for truth. And today the media has a different function. I don't think you can survive in the mainstream media unless you're willing to become a propagandist. And Pfizer, you said recently, my CNN colleague Anderson Cooper works for Pfizer. Why did you say that? Well, I, what I say it is, is technically the entire news industry is working for the pharmaceutical companies. I think Roger Ailes told me at one time, 17 out of 22 um, ads on a typical evening news show were pharma ads. Isn't that because the average Fox News viewer is 70 years old? Well, yeah, of course they are. But it also, you know, if you're telling me, Peter, that those 
pharmaceutical companies are not also dictating content, then you know you're telling me something that's not I've worked, true. I've worked at CNN. I've seen it. Okay, I've worked at CNN since before the first Gulf War, which is uh, 1990, 1991, and I'm just we're going to respectfully agree to disagree. So, in other words, you're taking the position because I want to hear this from yeah. you. At, you're, you're at the advertisers of the network news have no bearing, no influence on the content of those news shows. I have completely unaware of this ever happening in the 33 years I've worked at CNN. Yeah, but you know why? You know, Noam Chomsky had an answer for that. He, he said that if you were the kind of person that would actually see those connections, that you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting. Well, without getting into personalities, obviously journalism is the first draft of history and we're going to, journalists make mistakes just like everybody else. But in general, the idea that every media organization is somehow taking direction from the pharmaceutical companies, I don't, I don't think that is true. All right. Well, you and I will differ from that. Are you telling me that you could have this conversation with me on CNN? Well, I'm not an anchor on CNN. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm telling you that you could not. They haven't booked you? No, of course not. At all? No. You were on Smirconish. Smirconish booked me for on, on very, very narrowly. And that's it. That's the exception. And he's a CNN anchor. Yeah, but he's the exception. I found RFK Jr.'s portrayal of the mainstream media as propagandists in the pocket of pharmaceutical companies to be both perplexing and preposterous. It's part of his overall impulse to paint a picture of some kind of large-scale conspiracy to silence him when in fact he's been the subject of significant coverage in the Washington Post and the New York Times and a host of other media outlets. But RFK Jr. is perpetually frustrated by much of the mainstream media attention that he does get, like when he faces charges of anti-Semitism. Some of those stem from when Kennedy said this in 2022 at a rally against COVID restrictions. Even in Hitler, Germany, you could... You could cross the Alps into Switzerland. You can hide in an attic like Anne Frank did. I visited in 1962 East Germany with my father and met people who had climbed the wall and escaped. So it was possible. Many died truly, but it was possible. Today, the mechanisms are being put in place that will make it so none of us can run. The implied comparison of anti-COVID measures to Nazism and invoking the name of a child who was murdered in a concentration camp caused a immediate and withering backlash. RFK Jr. quickly apologized. Do you regret the Anne Frank observation? What, what, what did I say about Anne well, Frank? Well, you said that Anne Frank could hide in the attic and the other people could escape to Switzerland and escape the Nazis. You were comparing that to COVID protocols. Well, see, I wasn't doing that. That was a lie. That well, so what did you say? What I said is, you know, I was making the observation about this systematic attack on the, on the Bill of Rights during COVID. And I said, we're living at a time today where we have all these new technologies that for surveillance and control, there are AI technologies, there are uh, facial recognition that are being deployed all over the world. Uh, we have low altitude satellites that are looking, you know, that are permitted now to look at every square inch of the earth 24 hours a day. This is like a turnkey totalitarianism. You know, somebody can step into this and turn it all on at once and end democracy. And that because of that, we need to not be eroding our constitutional rights, but we need to be fortifying them to build up a barrier against that kind of takeover. 
And I said, it's been the ambition of every totalitarian system on earth in history to exercise total control over every aspect of our lives, our communication, our, our travel, our interactions with each other, our reading material. Is this so U.S. is a totalitarian state? Is that what you're saying? Listen to what I'm saying. I am listening, yeah. I, I, did you hear what I just said? It's the ambition of... I, I said it's the ambition of every totalitarian state. I didn't say the U.S. I said now there's this turnkey totalitarianism ready through AI and all of these other technologies that somebody can step in and turn it into a totalitarian state. So it was a warning. Oh, yeah. And I was saying, you know, and I gave examples from... I wanted to give an example from a, a left-wing totalitarian right-wing. So I said, e in East Germany, you could get over during the communist regimes. You could, I met people who had escaped through Checkpoint Charlie, had gotten over the wall, had tunneled under the war. My father introduced me to when I was a kid. I said, as a left-wing and a right-wing, like Germany during the war, you could swim across the Rhine. You could hide in a building and you know hide successfully for two years. They couldn't find you. But today, you couldn't do that. You can't do it. Everything is controllable. Everything is controllable, is an unsettling view to be sure, and the increasingly intrusive way that technology lets corporations and governments track our movements and actions is worrisome. So I understand why RFK Jr.'s crusade against this is appealing to some Americans. And as a journalist, I share Kennedy's tendency to question the official line. We found that common ground in the first part of this interview. But I do think that it ought to be permissible in this country to question official narratives. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Skepticism is good, but taken to its extreme, it becomes simple denial. In Kennedy's case, for example, he's skeptical of the official explanation that Al-Qaeda attacked the United States on 9-11. But there's just an overwhelming amount of evidence from hundreds of thousands of documents and human sources that point to one clear explanation. And yet he's still denying there's an explanation that's satisfying enough for him. So what's going to be good enough? The answer apparently is nothing. And that's because Kennedy trades in a level of skepticism that is absolute. People should not trust the government now. It's untrustworthy. People should not trust the media. It's untrustworthy. At some point, we all have to decide which people and institutions we're going to generally trust to tell us the truth. And not everyone can verify the moon landing by talking with Buzz Aldrin about it on a ski slope. I went skiing with Buzz Aldrin every year. I knew the astronauts. I knew them as honorable men who I talked to about the incident. And that was evidence for me that it happened. But it seems like the moon landing is one of the only official explanations of a significant event in recent American history that he totally buys. So, do we think that there are dark, corrupt forces at the heart of the United States government? Or that American government officials and scientists are all brilliant, squeaky clean, and have only the most altruistic of intentions at all times? Or is it maybe somewhere in between? My own view is that incompetence is a better explanation than conspiracy in most human activity. History is often made by humans who make dumb decisions. To cite a recent example, Putin invaded Ukraine last year and didn't get the quick victory he expected, but instead a bloody quagmire. By contrast, there's the hidden hand view of history, that some shadowy group or person controls things. The Jews or the Freemasons or George Soros or the World Economic Forum. 
There's an echo of this hidden hand idea in RFK Jr.'s conspiracist view that Big Pharma controls much of American life through their handmaidens in the media. These theories of what ails the United States can be appealing. They're a one-size-fits-all explanation of why bad things are happening. It's a lot harder to fight incompetence and bureaucracy than it is to blame a boogeyman. And like Kennedy said, Until we agree on what the truth is, we can't solve the problems. Like me, you may agree with RFK Jr. that it ought to be permissible in this country to question official narratives. I think it bears pointing out that if Robert F. Kennedy Jr. were to become president, however remote that possibility might seem right now, the official narrative would be his. If you're interested in learning some more about the findings of the nonpartisan COVID crisis group, take a listen to our episode 17, What If There Were a 9-11 Commission for COVID? And for more of my recommendations, please go to audible.com slash news. In the Room with Peter Bergen is an Audible original, produced by Audible Studios and Fresh Produce Media. This episode was produced by Trisha Bobita with help from Luke Cregan. Our executive producer is Alison Craiglow. Katie McMurrin is our technical director. Our staff also includes Alexandra Salomon, Eric German, Laura Tillman, Holly DeMuth, and Sandy Malera. Theme music is by Joel Picard. Our executive producers for Fresh Produce Media are Colin Moore, Jason Ross, and Joe Killian. Our head of development is Julian Ambler. Our head of production is Eleanor Bavietz. Eliza Lambert is our supervising producer. Maureen Trainer is our head of operations. Our production manager is Hermenio Ochoa. Our production coordinator is Henry Koch. And our delivery coordinator is Anna Paula Martinez. Head of Audible Studios, Zola Mashriki. Chief Content Officer, Rachel Giazza. Head of Content Acquisition and Development and Partnerships, Pat Shah. Special thanks to Marlon Calby, Alison Weber, and Vanessa Harris. Copyright 2023 by Audible Originals, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2023 by Audible Originals, LLC.